Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. series on first john where we spend 10 weeks on first john and how many of you guys love my dad actually spoke here last week um, my parents are, are some of my biggest heroes it was so cool to have them here i was not here but i'm happy to be back but anyway um we, we're starting a new series today and i'm calling it this and i want to explain it because we're going to spend about six weeks in it the ecology of a missional disciple the ecology of a missional disciple. Now, the reason I've, I chose this first word is because I, I'm somebody who loves words, and I want this word to stick out on purpose. Because ecology is a, is a term of biology, and its definition is it's the study of relationships among living organisms and their physical environments. So it's a, it's a biology term in which it's essentially the study of physical, or, of physical organisms and all of their surroundings. So it's a very broad and wide term, but I love the language. A study of a physical organism and its living environment. So when I talk about the ecology of a missional disciple, what I'm really saying is, what is your, as you a physical organism, what is it about you that is interacting with your surroundings in a way that shows a mission for Christ? And I would even say this, really what I want to talk about for the next few weeks is how we live on mission in this world. Because I think for a lot of us, I would even say this, there's an evangelistic mentality that we need to be sharing our faith, which we absolutely do. But I want to introduce this idea of being of light in all places. I want to be, introduce this idea of sharing your faith, living your faith, being your faith, and in all things, faith dictating. And really what I want to do it around is a couple of key terms. And these terms essentially each week we're going to focus on is, is over the next five weeks, these five characteristics of an ecological, an ecology missional disciple. Wow, that was terrible. Seeing, caring, praying, receiving, and going. Seeing, caring, praying, receiving, and going. And I want to challenge you today. The first step, right, is today we're going to be talking about one who sees the need to be on mission in this world, but has eyes open to what that mission entails. Before we do, I'll, uh, if you were here our first Sunday and you served on our team, um, you know this story. Um, and really what it's about is I, I want to make sure I tell the story often because I think it should be an image that is the lifeblood of who we are. But at the same time, people at the end of the story are like, wow, that's okay. That's an interesting story of lifeblood. Anyway, um, on our first Sunday here, September 25th of last year, uh, was the first time we ever met in this particular uh, room. And I remember I, at that time, was like, oh, I'm going to do a prayer walk down the road and around the city every week. And I was doing it until I realized it was, it was hot. <laughs> it's like I do it like 45 minutes before I preach and I come in after and it looked like I preached seven sermons. <laughs> 
But I remember that week, I, rem- I started out around this kind of walk that I'd done a bunch of times. And as I go out, I'm praying and I have kind of these prayer points. It's our first Sunday ever. And I'm a little bit terrified, anxious, stressed, and wondering if we're going to survive. And I remember I'm walking and I'm praying and I'm walking and I'm praying. I'm on my final stretch home. And as I look up the sidewalk, I can see, which is pretty common for here if you're not uh, aware of this area. I can see somebody out of their mind on the sidewalk, out of their mind. (laughs) And what I mean by that is they're out of their mind and they are dancing and they are moving and shucking and everything you can imagine. But they are out their mind. And I remember I'm so deep in prayer and I'm contending and travailing that I look at them and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go around this person because I see people like this all the time here. And I remember as I'm going, the Lord's like, oh, that sounds like the Good Samaritan story going to the other side. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry. So what do I do? I do like a little squiggle of like, oh, we're back. okay." and I'm walking. And as I'm getting closer and closer, this person is tripping out more and more. And I'm getting closer and closer. They're tripping out more and more. Finally, I get to about 10 feet. And that's when they really notice that I'm not going to move. And they look at me and they stop like this. Now, what's funny is this, right? This person had been dancing uncontrollably. And I mean, eyes in the back of their head, everything. And it was and then it was. And I get 10 feet away and I look at him and I literally have worship music in my AirPods. I've been praying for 15 and I just look at him and I go. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and that person looks at me, smile as big as can be out of their mind. It just <laughs> and there we are for 30 seconds on the sidewalk, just me and this person dancing. They have no clue what planet they're on, what day of the week, what time. They don't know nothing. Now, I tell you that story because the disposition is this, right? There was somebody in my path that I couldn't engage with verbally, but I could engage with in action that would show a light inside of me. And I want to say this to you. See, a lot of us, we think we need to be engaging with with words, which we absolutely should be. But when you can engage with your disposition, engage with your character, engage with who you are, and be somebody whose light is so bright that it doesn't even need words. See, our world today is filled with people who want to talk about being a light. But when you rhythmically study their lives, are they a light? I was with somebody this week and I was, it's always funny when I feel like, you know, I'm, for lack of a better term, witnessing to somebody just about how fulfilling living in Christ is. But this particular person who doesn't really follow the Lord, I was talking to them. I said, you know, I want to challenge you. Sin, yes, it's, it's, it's a word that, you know, as we're discussing, it's something that you're like, man, sin's bad and all of these things. But I think more than anything, sin just grieves God, not in a, I'm so mad at you and you're going to be punished. But I think it grieves God in such a way because he's saying, man, this is, this is just going to create distance and proximity. And this distance and proximity that it creates, what it's doing is you will never know me in the fullness of what I've created you to know me. And that's what grieves me. It's not the action, it's the distance. And I said, you know what? You know what a dimmer switch is in your house, how you can turn it up and down. When you sin, it just turns down and down and down until it's just off. 
When you live in righteousness and holiness, all of a sudden is that goes up and up and up in such a way that as it goes up, there is an illumination of all things present around because the light allows your eyes to see in a way that they couldn't in darkness. And I want to challenge all of us today. Maybe some of us are like, I've not lived a very holy life. I've not lived a very righteous life. I would even challenge you today. Can you sense the darkness of a dimmer switch that has been silenced because you've created distance between your creator and creation? But rather, this is why we choose holiness. This is why we choose following Jesus is as we choose him, the light shines a little brighter. And we think it shines brighter within this, but we don't realize it's actually shining brighter within this. To where it's not just our words that carry weight anymore, it's our actions of dancing with randos on the sidewalk. So today, that is the first place we're going to start, but now we actually need to read scripture. And I'll be honest, I told my wife this week, I was talking about this, I have been so excited, I've never taught on this passage, and in my opinion, it's one of the weird, like, you're like, you read it, and you're like, man, this seems a little off for Jesus. And I'm so excited because, once again, I've been wanting to teach on this, and today I'm going to, because it's, once again, we are focused on the ecology of a missional disciple pertaining to seeing. So, if we want to live on mission, how are we to see the people around us and the world that we've been called to be on mission for? How are we to see them? And this story is an incredible example of how we're supposed to see, but it's not in a way that you would see, I guess. (laughs) Matthew 15, 21 through 28. No pun intended. That was way too late to get a laugh. Anyway... Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. In Matthew 15, 1 through verse 20, what you see right before this happens is Jesus is in an argument. He's had an argument with the Pharisees, and in particular, the Pharisees are mad at him because they are wondering why the disciples do not practice ceremonially hand cleaning before eating. So it goes into this whole thing of, why aren't your disciples washing their hands? Which you should wash your hands, guys. And girls, but more guys. I feel like that's more of a guy problem. <laughs> Some guys in here, I'm attacked, right? It's like no hand sanitizer doesn't count. Wash and hand. Um, but Jesus looks at them, and, and he's, he, I know what he's thinking. He's thinking, you're seriously wondering about hand washing right now. But he looks at them and what happens is he goes into this long discourse and dialogue relating to how stupid a question that is. And essentially says that you are blind guides of blind people. Which is a very interesting take on civilization at the time. As he's looking out he's saying man you are blind guides of blind people. Jesus has been doing ministry now for a number or or a a measurable amount of time, but he's essentially coming to the realization that the people have been led blindly by the blind leaders. Then this story happens right after, and I don't find a coincidence. Verse 22, and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. 
Jesus ignored her. How many times do you see this in Scripture? Where Jesus literally has somebody right in front of them, ask him a question, and he doesn't say anything and ignores her. Let's keep going. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away. She keeps shouting at us. So he's ignored her, and his disciples are saying, all right, now send her away. He hasn't answered her petition. He hasn't even acknowledged her existence. What's going on? Well, let's keep reading. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. This is what I mean about a, this is a teaching not a lot of people preach on because it's one of those where you're like, did Jesus really say that? Did he ignore somebody who was asking for healing? And then after that person asking, look and saying, listen, I'm here for the children of Israel, not for dogs like you. Let's keep reading. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Once again, that's the story, but we're going to start breaking it down now. And really what I want to break it down around is this idea that why would Jesus ignore? Why would Jesus not just ignore, but then call somebody a dog that doesn't barely deserve crumbs from the table? But then heal her. It's like this weird, like, insult, but then, yeah, yeah, I'll heal you, but like kind of insulted still, or should be, or I would be, or I kind of am. So today, what I want to talk about, how to see those in front of you in order to love how God intended you to. And what I'm doing is I'm going to frame this story around three points. The first one is this. Whatever you have labeled you hate is what God will challenge you to love. If your love has limits, so too will your depth of knowing Jesus. He loves them just as much as he loves you. You can leave that on the screen, little screen, little beach. We got big beach and little beach in here. It's, their last name is Beecher, so I call them big and little beach. Everybody else is so confused. Stop laughing, front row. Canaanite woman is a massive clue to this story. Canaanite woman is a massive clue. Canaanites were the enemies of Israel in the promised land of the Old Testament. That instead of the promised land being destroyed, they were intermarried with. What does that mean? Moses, God comes down and says, I'm going to give you the promised land, but you need to kill everybody in it. Because if you don't, they worship idols. And those idols will infiltrate this lifestyle and it will change the covenant and you will walk away from me. So here's the deal. Canaanite in this particular text and moment is somebody that is looked down upon and scorned by the Jewish people of we should have killed you hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but we didn't and you're the reason we sinned. What's even more fascinating is they don't blame themselves for their lack of self-control in intermarrying them. They blame them for even being present and then just leading them astray. So the whole dialogue framed around the Canaanite is essentially this woman is scorned by all of the Jews. And what we see is this is pretty common for Jesus, whether it's the leper 
whether it's the one who sleeps around, whether it's the people who have no reason or merit to even really be alive, Jesus engages with. But in this one, there's like this shadow game going on where Jesus is absolutely there to redeem Israel, but he's reframing. Remember where we started? You were blind guides leading blind people. And now he's talking to a Canaanite, the reason that his people aren't holy, but they weren't the reason. The reason his people were unholy is just because they were disobedient. But people blamed their presence that produced disobedience. And I want to say this to you today. See, uh, when we want to live on mission, a lot of the times is we blame the presence of fill in the blank for a disobedient fill in the blank. And what I mean by that is how many of us blame where our country is at or where this person is at or what happened on fill in the blank and not really realize that those are, we, we're not here to blame, we're here to change. And I want to say this to you today because I think a lot of us, we come into this place and and we have literal types of people or people in general that we label as, man, I hate being around them. Man, I hate being in their presence. Man, I hate how they think. Man, I hate when they come around. Man, I don't really want to go if I know that they're going to be there. And we don't realize that that's the mission we've been invited into. The mission we're invited into is to go after the ones because they feel hatred. What would happen if they felt love for the first time? See, the Canaanite woman is one who had only known hatred. What happens when she feels loved? She's miraculously healed. Do you think she lived the same? I genuinely, I believe that this entire passage is from the first part. Jesus is so frustrated with blind guides and blind people that he's just ready to start over with a new type of person. One who's just open and asking. Let that sink into you today. God's reframing that every person believed that Jesus would be coming just for the children of Israel. But he reframes the narrative and says, yes, I'm here for them. But actually, the dogs that you have labeled, I am now here for. See, what I'm trying to say today is this. is for some of us, the hardest lessons to learn come from the people you want to see least. Our tendencies of surrounding ourselves with the like-minded will only result in small-minded. And I challenge you, wherever you are and whatever you're doing today, to find people who are not like you. And what you might find is that as you go on mission to see life change, you might get it too. Some of the most profound stories of my life are when I engaged with people that I shouldn't have Or that others would label as, why would you even spend time with those people? Is because I find that as I'm shining my light, my light's also being purified to shine brighter and better. And some of the reason we don't even want to go on mission with Jesus is because we have only one way of our light shining. And if you don't like it, I don't care. I'm not hiding it under a bushel, no. But when we choose to engage on mission, a world with light, it might mean that we're dancing with somebody out their mind. But it's a profound moment in which I didn't have words, but I had actions to engage. And mission has to change today. It has to change from just words, even though words are profound and powerful and the gospel should absolutely be be shared. 
But the gospel is your existence. It is who you are. How are you changing the environments you come into contact? How are you interacting with those you hate, ostracize, demonize, or think are too far from God? See, that's the level of your depth of love. And so I want to say this today. This whole story centers around one term, Canaanite. That was then a dog. But really, it wasn't the Canaanites' fault. It was the children of Israel's fault. And then a blame game happened. I pray that we don't blame the world so much that we forget we're supposed to change it. The second thing is this. You might be surprised the response you get from crumbs moments when you see people rightly. The people who are too far gone in your mind might be the ones who respond to faith the fastest if you give them a chance. Risks that pay off equal faith that blows up. Risks that pay off equal a faith that blows up. You know, I actually, I've been blessed to, I've had incredible testimonies of this in my life. People that I just felt a nudging and shared and ultimately life changed ensued. One of my favorite ones, and I know she won't mind if I tell this story. After high school, I graduated and I didn't make the NFL. Some of you guys are like, wow, you had a chance? Never had a chance. I was 145 pounds and a lot of attitude. It's like, when you're that small, you should be a kicker. I'm like, put me at nose guard. But I remember I, I went and I did a, a mission trip and I lived in India for three months. And when I came back, I was so on fire for the Lord. And there was one particular friend that I had had in high school and this friend in high school had really fallen on a tough time. And not only had they fallen on a tough time, they had dropped out of high school. She had kind of had some different things with just partying and, and, and some different other stuff. You guys can fill in the blank. And life was not good. And I remember I came back and I felt challenged to reach out to this person with the crumbs of just a little lunch. And so what I did is I texted, I hadn't talked to this girl in over a year, and I texted her, I said, hey, I'm in town for just a little bit, I'd love to get lunch with you. And over lunch that day at Kidoba, I shared, and I said, man, I really feel like there's purpose for your life. What would it look like for you to do something I just did? And over the course of time, she decided to do that. She decided to go to a, a training school and then go on a mission trip. And then that snowballed into actually becoming a missionary, which then that snowballed into not just becoming a missionary, but meeting her husband, who was also a missionary, which then snowballed into them living overseas and leading a missions base and now having kids that they are raising in the image of God. I don't tell you that story to get for credit, but I do tell you that story because some of us, we have crumbs in our schedules and in our lives and opportunities around us right now where people are searching for meaning. They're searching for purpose. They're searching for anything that will make them feel alive. And the only thing that does is the one who created life. If you want to live on mission... You have to be okay with some of us. We're like, well, I can't go on eight-month mission trips. Well, I can't serve and do everything all the time. But you sure as heck can see who crosses your path. See the person right in front of you. And recognize that even the crumbs from the king's table can provide a sustenance that is miraculous.
if I'm honest. It's not the sinners that make me the maddest in ministry. It's the saints that are stingy with the crumbs they've been given. The sinner that finds God gives me so much joy. The saint that won't open the hand to the one in need is the one that I struggle with. My last point is this. If your seeing is believing, then your doing must be activated. So many profess to wanting to see God do things, yet want to do nothing. Your enjoyment of a seat at the table is multiplied when you start finding room and making more seats. It's not about your place, but rather the places you make for the dogs of this world. One of the most frustrating passages for any Christian to read that has any lens of what I would call biblical maturity is found in Matthew 20, verse 1 through verse 16, and I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to talk about it. In it, a master goes out five times during the day to hire workers to work in a vineyard. It says, one, he sought out workers in the early hour, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. The eleventh hour, meaning those who were hired at the end, only worked one hour of a twelve-hour day. The famous line, the last shall be first, comes from this because what happens is is all five of the shifts come forward after a day's labor and are all paid the same. Frustrating and wondering what the master is doing, they shout out, are you serious? How could we have worked 12 hours, that person worked one hour, and we're all paid the same? And then the last shall be first line is uttered in which we love to say, oh, you know, that's a great leadership principle. But if we worked a 12-hour shift and got paid the same as somebody who worked one hour, we all would be pissed. (laughs) See, it's about this heart of the worker, one who thinks themselves better than, worth more, or being something greater. See, Jesus is confronting an ideology that we all aren't all invited into the same blessing, into the same covenant, into the same life. And I want to say this to you, the labor of life for you today is not for you to be above the world looking down on it. It's for you to extend a table and add so many seats and have people experience the life that you have now. And it's funny, I was talking to another friend this week, and I, I, I said, you know, it's almost as I've been processing, I've made a commitment to the Lord that I'm going to share my faith with eyes that see whoever crosses my path at least one time in depth this week going for, and going forward, I don't know, maybe indefinitely. Because I know God brings people across, and it's easy for me to write off. But I've been struggling, how do I put into words what means so much? How do I put into words what I've sacrificed and built my life around? How do I put into words what has costed me everything but also given me everything? What? How can I say it? And I feel like the Lord's been challenging Micah the simplest way. Can you just tell people how loved they are? Can you tell people that there is a solution to a fallen and broken world? Can you tell people that they do have purpose and a plan? 
And see, as somebody who's an orator like me, I love to have the story and, and the abstract and something that comes in the back door. And, but for some reason, the gospel is, is, is just so simple. Yet we have tried to make it complex and make it seem, but to be one who the ecology of our mission is to interact with all of our physical surroundings is simple in nature yet profound in priority. How many of us have made it a priority to ever tell somebody about Jesus? To tell the Canaanite dog that even though everybody else doesn't think you deserve it and you've just asked for crumbs, I'll give you much more. See, as sad as it is, I think a lot of us in this place We almost have built our life on crumbs, and so all we can offer our people crumbs. And I just want to say, if that's how it is, there is more for you, but those crumbs can do more than you think. And in closing, I want to say this. Your fulfillment from the table comes from creating space to see and engage those who don't believe they have a right to sit at it. Telling them about the Savior who died so they would have a place to sit, a power to save, and a Messiah who can heal and deliver. You want the fullness that comes from a seat at the king's table? Get to know the bread of life so closely that the crumbs spill out on everyone and everywhere. God, today would you give us eyes to see the so-called dogs that we don't think deserve the divine and give them the bread of life. This story... Jesus ignoring, Jesus labeling, Jesus writing off, but then Jesus healing is more so the theatrics of a cultural moment where everybody has labeled, blamed, cast off and said, this is the worst person. Jesus says, my power's for them as well. May it be said of your life that you don't write anybody off, cross anybody off the list, label, stereotype, or destroy credibility in which you can't cross a bridge to introduce Jesus to you. And may we give people the true bread. Let's stand to our feet. Before we worship with one final song, I want to read something over our church. If you've been here any length of time, you know that I just write out a sermon related to related to the, the, or a prayer related to the sermon. So today, whatever your posture for receiving is, I pray that we would have one more moment of quiet stillness and an open heart to receive this. Father, today, give us eyes to see. The lost, the last, the least, the broken, the forgotten, the marginalized, the depressed, the downcast, the distant, the confused, the anxious, and the searching children of this world. We repent of inactivity, of writing off those who were written upon your heart when you died on the cross. Help us to recognize a messenger DNA. Ones who are not complacent, but rather combustible to a world starved for a light in the darkness. God, would you breathe hope on the crumbs in our hands. Love upon the crumbs in our hands. Peace upon the crumbs in our hands. 
trusting that when we scatter those crumbs, it'll heal, restore, and is the life to a world that's only known a fallen, destructive, and death-filled existence. God, give us eyes to see those in our paths you have called us to dance with and engage with. Today, O Holy Spirit, allow our eyes to be open to those looking for hope in this earthly home. Today, we say yes to being messengers, not baptized into passivity and negativity of cultural Christianity, but rather hope for the lost to be found through our words and our actions, the light to shine in the darkness through our deeds and our truth, and for heaven to touch earth in a way where no matter how much of a dog you may feel like, you see and are invited to a play around the king's table. In Jesus' name.